If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Genesis chapter 19. We continue in our study of the life of Abraham, but today we'll take a brief look at what happened to Lot after the destruction of Sodom. By way of review, um, the Lord with two angels, even though this wasn't known immediately, uh, are passing by Abraham's tent. And he asks them, actually more like pleads with them to come in that he might show them hospitality, which included water with which to wash their feet. Uh, they could, in fact, have food. They could rest under the tree and get you know, some, be refreshed and then continue on their journey. The visitors agree. And so Abraham runs in and tells Sarah to prepare 21 quarts of flour, three seahs of flour. He gets a choice tender calf, has his servant prepare it. He brings curds, which is sort of the first stage in making cheese and milk, and provides them for his guests. As I mentioned last week, he stands apart. He doesn't join in them. He is the host. They are the guest, and he wants them uh, to enjoy their meal. It's for them. He doesn't include himself. It is during this time that the promise of a son is repeated. Um, Sarah hears it and laughs and then denies that she laughed. Uh, But about this time next year, there will be a son. The three men get up to leave, go on their way. And one of them, who is now referred to as the Lord, so this is the pre-incarnate Christ, enters into a dialogue with Abraham. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Um, Last week, I think we failed to focus on the first part of it, which is found in verse number 18. This is chapter 18, verse 18. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. That's sort of the good part of the of the conversation. That's the good news. This is what God is going to do for him. The second part's not so great. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men, the two men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. The first part, as I said, is wonderful. The promise is repeated. The second part is terrible. And for Abraham, there is confusion to a certain certain extent. Uh, How can God say wonderful things and terrible things in the same breath? How can God do both wonderful and terrible things? Abraham is shocked. And he says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Implied in what the Lord tells him is, if it's as bad as I've heard it is, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, Abraham cannot, cannot believe this. His nephew lives there with his family. 
Abraham rescued the people of Sodom when the four kings from the north came and took them, and so he knows them. But more importantly is the issue of who is God. It boils down to this. Who are you, God? You're the Lord. Who are you? You called me to leave my home, my people, to come to a place I did not know. You made wonderful promises to me. You entered into covenant with me. You changed my name from Abram to Abraham. Now I don't know who you are. You appear to be a monster to me. Someone who will sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Far be it from you to do such a thing. And he repeats it. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Simply put, Abraham says, you can't do this. Lord, you can't do this. And by the way, something that I didn't mention last week. Human history is filled with stories in which the righteous were killed along with the wicked. If we think of the recent earthquake in Turkey and Syria, I'm fairly certain that some of those who died, the thousands of them who died, some of them were our brothers and sisters. If something were to happen to California, do we imagine that we would be somehow insulated from all that and only the bad people will be affected? Abraham just cannot comprehend how God could do such a thing. And so we have him doing, what if there are 50 righteous people? What if there are 50 minus 5? It's 45, 40, 30, 20. And finally, for the sake of 10, will you spare the city? And the Lord responds each time for the sake of, and whatever the number Abraham says, I will not destroy it. But then Abraham stops at 10. And why did he stop at 10? I think we may never know. But one thing is certain, Abraham is now reassured. The God who he has listened to, who he has obeyed, who has made promises to him, entered into covenant with him, he's not a monster. He is not a monster. God, in this conversation, is changing before Abraham's very eyes. This is the familiar God of the covenant. And yet, it's not as though Abraham's like, oh, I get you. Now I understand. No. He recognizes that God is God. But in many ways, his ways are beyond finding out. Um, Yes, God is familiar to him, but in some ways, someone he scarcely knew. Abraham is satisfied. He is satisfied. And as I mentioned last week, one writer has put it this way. Whether Sodom was consumed or not, the universe was on solid footing. The storm might be terrible and its havoc beyond belief, yet all was well. The Lord leaves, Abraham returns to his tent, and the two men go down to Sodom. And at the beginning of chapter 19, we find out that these two men are actually angels. And we have sort of a parallel. In the same way that Abraham showed hospitality to the three men, Lot is at the gate of the city, and he wants to show hospitality to the two men, who at first are like, no, we'll just stay in the, in the town square, which was the custom for travelers. But he insists, and they are taken to his house. Three times in this story, they rescue Lot. The first time is when the men of Sodom want to get these two men. They come to Lot's house. They want to take them and they want to sexually abuse them. 
And Lot, quite foolishly, is like, no, don't do this. I've got two daughters. You can take them. Um, but the men begin to beat on the door as though to break in. But the men inside, the two angels, reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. That's the first rescue. The second is they're like, we've got to get out of here. The Lord is going to destroy this place. Um, But Lot hesitated. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand in the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. They tell Lot, the Lord is going to destroy this place, and he hesitates. The third time they rescued him was they said, run to the mountains because the valley is going to be wiped out. He's like, I'm not going to make it to the mountains. Uh, How about that little town over there called Zoar? I'll, I'll just go there. And they say, okay, um, very well. Um, I will grant this request to, I will not overthrow the town you speak of. So only one town in that valley survived the judgment of God. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. Then we have, you know, the angels have said, don't look back. Lot's wife did, and she turned into a pillar of salt. But today the narrative continues, and now it is one of the darker stories in the book of Genesis, the story of Lot and his daughters. Look, if you would, at verse number 30. We'll read verse 30 to 38. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man around here to lie with us, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then lie with him, and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine, and the older daughter went in and lay with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day the older daughter said to the younger, Last night I lay with our father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight, and you go in and lie with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also, and the younger daughter went and lay with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites today. What we saw last week is that Lot asked the angels if he could go to Zoar instead of going to the mountains. They say, okay. But now he leaves Zoar and he ends up going to the mountains. By the way, Zoar means little. Okay, so it's a little place. And why does he want to leave? This is the theme of this passage and what we will see in chapter 20. In a word, it is fear. He's afraid. He was afraid to stay in Zoar. And just an aside here, a brief review. Uh, we looked at the matter of fear. 
uh, several years ago in a series on fear. The appearance of fear in the world is found in the story of the rebellion of Adam and Eve. They were placed in the Garden of Eden so that they might learn lessons. They needed to learn. They need to learn obedience. They were given callings. They were to take care of the Garden, and they were to trust God. They were to obey Him. Now comes the test. And what we find in the story is that they were unwilling to be creatures. They instead wanted to declare themselves as self-created. Made in the image of God, somehow as fallen creatures now, the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we live as though we are God himself. We are, in fact, to love one another in the pattern of God's loving and being. But the first two human beings said, no, that's not good enough. And instead, they were tempted by the words of the serpent, you will be like God. Not, well, they already were in the image of God, but you will be like God. Instead of reflecting the goodness of God, the love of God, the life of God, they instead would look inward and that which was given to them by gift, they would take as though it were their very own. They're no longer reflectors. They imagine themselves to be the source of life and light and love itself. Well, that's not what we were made for. We were made to reflect who God is. And as a result, this is, those of you who know more about this than I do with electricity or electrical systems, when you, it has too much power, it's going to blow out. And they took something on themselves which was not theirs to take on. They were instead to reflect who God was. And the result is fear. They were afraid. That is the result of taking on something that is not yours to take on in the first place. God had given them boundaries. He had told them, this is what you're supposed to do, and don't eat from this one tree. They were to learn a lesson, and they did not. They refused to learn the lesson. So now they are afraid, and all of their children after them are factory setting, heard the expression this week. Our default setting is fear, because Adam and Eve took on something that was not theirs. Instead of being recipients, they imagined themselves to be masters, We will be like God, not content to simply reflect his goodness. We're afraid that we will fail, and of course we will, because we're not creators. But fear is something that comes so naturally to us. So Lot and his daughter leave Zoar because he's afraid. They go to a cave, they live in the mountains where the angels had told them to go in the first place, and then the daughters come up with a scheme whereby their dad will get them pregnant. And like, what are they thinking? Why are they thinking this way? Again, because of fear. Their fear is that, hey, we're living up here in the mountains in a cave, there's no way we're ever going to find a husband, we're not going to have any kids, So, hey, let's get our father drunk 
and the older will sleep with him first, and then the younger second, and then we will have children. They were afraid that if they stayed in the cave, they in fact would not have any husbands or any children. The rationale behind it, the justification behind it, may sound good. I mean, as off-putting as the idea of incest is, they want their father's line to continue. They don't want his family line to end with him. They want it to continue. That's why they come up with this plan. Um, I've mentioned before that uh, P.D. James, a writer of mystery novels, uh, every time somebody commits a murder, they think they're doing a good thing, that there's a good reason for it, a good explanation. There is the expression, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, This was actually coined by Bernard of Clairvaux. We sing three of his hymns in our hymnal. Uh, People think they're doing the right thing, or it may be a wrong thing, but they're doing it for the right reason, so that's all that counts. So, yeah, we want our dad's line to continue, so let's have sex with him. Let's sleep with him. How perverse it was. And as a result, they both get pregnant. The older one, By the way, the daughters are never named. The older one names her son Moab. He becomes the father of the Moabites. The younger one names her son Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites. They thought they were doing a good thing, but they produced two peoples, two nations, who would end up providing the worst carnal seduction of Israel at Baal Peor, And the Ammonites worshipped Molech, in which they sacrificed their children. They thought they were doing a good thing, um, and in fact, they were not. But in a strange way, it all goes back to when Abraham said, you pick, Lot, we can't stay together, you pick. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw the whole plain, how green it was, and he's like, yeah, I want to go down there. And we read that he pitched his tent near Sodom. Uh, Well, Abram in fact, followed God. It's one of those stories, if you're reading through the Bible with children, you might be tempted to skip over because of the perverseness of it. But there it is. Now we come to chapter 20. The narrative goes back to Abraham. 19 was about Lot, now chapter 20 comes back. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. Abraham was a pilgrim. He was committed to the pilgrim's life and so he was moving from place to place. And in doing so he would have to deal with different political realities, different kings, different rulers, different customs and laws. Gerar was in fact A caravan city, it was on the border between Egypt and Canaan, and it is a place that caravans pass through. It was also a royal city, it's where the king lived. In this case, his name was Abimelech. Verse 2, And there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Wait a minute, doesn't this sound familiar? Does this sound vaguely familiar? Some have even suggested, oh, this is just a repetition. It's a duplicate of what we saw in chapter uh, 12, 
when Abram went down to Egypt and Pharaoh took Sarah. And they argue, this can't, this is just a duplicate. Whoever was copying this made a mistake because no one would ever do the same thing again. To which I would say, really? Have you looked in the mirror lately? This is 25 years later and Abraham is doing the same thing. Verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. For the third time in the Abrahamic narrative, we have the Lord having appeared to someone who is not part of Abraham's family. We have Melchizedek, who is priest of God Most High. We have Hagar, who runs away from Sarah. And then God uh, speaks to her, the God who sees me. And now we have Abimelech, who uh, sees God in a dream, or God speaks to him in a dream. It is interesting that Abimelech says something very similar to Abraham, will you destroy an innocent nation? Like, we didn't know about this. Uh, By the way, this came up when we looked at chapter 12. Uh, In chapter 12, um, Sarah was 65 years old. And apparently at 65, she was still a good-looking woman, so much so that Pharaoh takes her into his household to join his harem. Well, it's 24 years later. So she's 89 going on 90. And she still apparently is very beautiful so that Abimelech takes her into his household. But God intervenes. He tells Abimelech in a dream, you're as good as dead. You've taken somebody else's wife. Um, And Abimelech's protests of innocence um, is, I think, quite moving. You know, I, I didn't know. Um, please don't destroy people, you know, innocent people because of what this man told me. And the Lord informs him, listen, I have kept you from sinning. I've kept you from doing something you shouldn't do. And that's why I did not let you touch her. And then he says something I find really extraordinary. Um, now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you will live. Um, first thing that comes to mind is from Psalm 105. He allowed no one to oppress them for the sake he rebuked kings. For their sake he rebuked kings. Do not touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Um, the second thing that occurs to me is much less pleasant. You know, if I were Abimelech and God said to me, listen, this guy's a prophet and he's going to pray for you. I think my response would be, really? Can you get, is there anybody else who can pray for me? Because I'm not sure I want Abraham a man who lied to me, allowed me to take his wife into my household, you want him to pray for me? Surely you've got somebody who could do a better job than this. 
But Abimelech takes the Lord at his word. And he returns Sarah. Verse 8. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials. And when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you brought such a great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should not have been done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? And why did Abraham do this? Verse number 11, Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Simply put, I was afraid. And then a weak answer in verse 12. Uh, Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. And apparently Sarah goes along with the scheme. Um, And I have to back up a minute. I think it's easy for us to be critical of Abraham and of Sarah, but they were people basically without a country, and they're wandering from political entity to political entity. And, you know, strangers have no legal standing in most societies, and so there's real reason to be concerned. I just find it hard as a married man to think that I would say to my wife, hey, if you really love me, you'll tell people that we're not married. You'll tell people that we're brother and sister. Yeah. I remember when we went through chapter 12, I said, you know, on the way back from Egypt, it must have been a very difficult journey. Um, And someone said, well, maybe she gave him the silent treatment. Doesn't matter. He puts his wife, his beloved, he puts her and her honor in danger. It's remarkable. Then what had happened in chapter 12 in Egypt happens again here, but for a different reason. Look at verse 14. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. And then look at verse 16. To Sarah he said, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his slave girls, so that they could have children again. For the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. As was the case in Egypt, they got gifts. But in Egypt, it was sort of, uh, here, let me win your favor. This is your sister here as her brother. Let me give you these gifts. Uh, Abimelech it's something else um, to cover the offense against you. 
In other words, something terrible has happened here. I brought a married woman to be part of my household. That should not have been done. And clearly, I would say Abimelech was innocent. Abraham and Sarah are in the wrong. But he gives these, in a sense, uh, as compensation. But to say, um, before all who are with you, you are completely vindicated. I'm thinking, well, I don't know about completely vindicated. Uh, you guys lied to me. But Abimelech is basically saying something bad happened here, and I, want, I, I, I give these as gifts to say, in fact, um, what I did was wrong. I took a married woman into my household, and I want to make it right. Abraham the prophet, your brother, prayed for Abimelech. And God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his slave girls. At least two questions come to mind in looking at this passage. The first has to do with Lot and what Peter wrote about him in 2 Peter chapter 2. Um, in 2 Peter chapter 2, he's writing against the false teachers, the false prophets, and he mentions three examples of judgment. The first had to do with the angels. Um, if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. The second is that of Noah. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood upon its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. And the third is Sodom and Gomorrah. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly. And, and Peter says, listen, if God did this to the angels, to the ancient world, to Sodom and Gomorrah, what do you think he's going to do to false prophets? Okay. The first example, this is the only time that it's mentioned in Scripture, the idea that God judged the angels and cast them into the dungeons. Um, the story of the flood we know, um, Sodom and Gomorrah, we've just gone through and looked at it. But that's, that's not what gets me. It is this. Verses, verse 7. If he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of the lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Yet when I think of Lot, righteous is not the word that comes to mind. Um, but Peter has several things to tell us here. First of all, um, judgment's coming. Judgment is coming. If God didn't spare the angels, if he didn't spare the, anci uh, the ancient world and flooding the world, if he didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, why, what gives you the idea that he is going to spare the wicked of that time? But the second point is that when we live in a world that is under judgment, we as God's people, it's going to be difficult and this is what is said of Lot. Here he is lived, living in Sodom, wickedness left and right. And he was distressed in his soul. It wasn't easy for him to do that. Now, his, he probably shouldn't have been there in the first place, but that's another story. 
fact is, if we live in a fallen world in which wickedness surrounds us, it's not going to be easy, and we shouldn't imagine that it would be. Of the three examples of judgment, Lot is the one that we can, we can uh, identify with, because we don't know the story of the angels um, and the idea of the world being flooded. But Sodom and Gomorrah, that, I think, we can really relate to that. The problem with Lot was he did not live by faith, but by sight. He lifted up his eyes. He saw the green plain, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, civilization and vegetation, and that's what he wanted, and that's where he went. Abraham stayed in Canaan. Lot did not live by faith, but was driven by fear. He didn't want to leave the city. He had to be yanked out. He didn't want to go to the mountains because he didn't think he could make it. He goes to Zoar and then he doesn't stay there because he's afraid of the people. He's driven by fear and not by faith. But the second question, perhaps the more important question is, how could Abraham allow this to happen again? How could he allow Sarah to be taken by another man and have her lie for him? You see, in chapter 12, Abram was still relatively new in his relationship with God. But this is 24, 25 years later. The promises have been spoken more than once and confirmed. The covenant has been instituted. The seal of the covenant is circumcision. The promise is made that Sarah is going to have a son. And twice in that year, about this time next year, when I come back next year, okay, And now you're going to let her be with another man? How could he commit the same sin again? One writer has observed, it was not the fall of a young, young and inexperienced disciple, but the lapse of one who had long walked the path of faith that here shows himself ready to sacrifice the honor of his wife and what is worse, give up the one who was a depository of all the promises. Listen, he can't be a great nation if Sarah doesn't have a child. Yet he seems willing to give that up. What then is man and what hope for him except in God? None, surely. Only when unable to do without God for a moment do we find that he is for us moment by moment. What he is for us. By the way, in the, in the promise of forgiveness today that Dave read to us, that in fact, he will give us grace when we need it. We always need it. We are always in need of God's grace. Another writer has noted, it's the stress of circumstances. And the stress of circumstances reveal Abraham's heart. And his factory setting is that of fear. In both stories, Lot and Abraham, the issue is fear. The most repeated command in scripture. We remember the words of the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We sing at the beginning of our worship service, because the Lord is my salvation, I will not fear. Because my confidence is in you, I will not fear. Because you are with me, I will not fear. 
and yet we fear. Like Abraham and like Lot, fear tempts us to make safety and self-preservation our highest goals. In fact, what has happened in our society, and particularly during this pandemic, is that safety has become the main virtue in our society. And we find counter-virtues, those that make us feel safe, suspicion, stranger danger, preemption, got to wear that mask all the time, wherever you are, accumulation, make sure that you have all that you need, have replaced what God has called us to, and that is hospitality, being peacemakers, and being generous. So, the answer, however, and we, when we went through the series on fear, we saw this, the answer is not to be fearless, okay? We shouldn't say, oh, I'm, I'm not going to be afraid of anything or anyone. Well, fearlessness is not the answer. Rather, the answer is to fear what we should in the right way, the right time, to the right extent. And how do we know what is the right fear to have? Well, it has a twin virtue that goes with it, hand in hand, and that is love. Love casts out fear, we're told in John. If you get rid of one, then you will lose the other, because fear is born of love. It, in fact, can awaken us to the fact that these are someone, or this is someone, these are people that we love. In a real sense, fear can be a gift, which means that fearlessness is then the vice. That if fear is born of love, then it can awaken us to love. It can awaken us to loves. Things that we have taken for granted, things that we have overlooked, things we have forgotten. I think it's when we are most threatened that clearly we see this is what is important. These are the things that matter. Abraham's love for God and his love for Sarah failed him in this instance. He chose the wrong kind of fear, a fear that led him to lie. It's the same fear that caused Lot's daughters to sleep with him so that they might get pregnant. And in the story of Abraham, we find that he chose fear over love. But the story's not over. And if you would look at chapter 21. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old, when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. 
And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. God keeps his promises. Abraham was fearful. Sarah laughed. Abraham laughed. But God kept his promises. And so on this day, I didn't want to end with Abraham's fear, but rather God's promises and his faithfulness. And the Lord willing, next week we will look more at the story as it continues in the life of Isaac. Let's pray together. Our Father, perhaps what we find so disturbing of the story of Abraham is how much we are guilty of the same thing. Being driven by fear rather than faith and love. Abraham lied. He put Sarah at risk. He put the promises at risk. In your grace, you delivered, you intervened. On the one hand, we're grateful to know that Abraham wasn't a perfect man. On the other hand, we are concerned that we might be just like him in so many ways. To repeat the same mistake over and over again to be driven by fear time and time again. I remember a friend years ago who would pray, Lord, help us to learn the lessons you want us to learn so that we don't have to learn them again. And yet it seems that we do need to learn the lessons over and over again. But you're gracious. You kept your promise. Sarah had a son. The failings of Abraham and Sarah did not cancel out your promises. Our sin and our faithlessness at times does not cancel out your grace. You are with us every step of the way. This doesn't mean that we can feel free to do what we want, but rather to trust and rest in you rather than in our own obedience. Help us to think and meditate on these things in the days to come. Give us humility as well as gratitude. Thank you for bringing us together today. We pray for Ruth as she's traveling this Friday. You would give her safety. Bring her back to us safely as well. For Lonnie, as she contacts her doctors this week. For all that have been mentioned during the time for prayer, we commit them once again to you. To the God who kept his promise to Abraham and Sarah. We bow before you in thanksgiving. And we pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.